All right, chapter 2 of Ephesians, we have been looking at who, over the course of several weeks, we've been looking at who the Ephesians were before Christ, right? We have been looking at who they became in Christ. We've been looking at how and why God did what He did for them, made them Christians, their purpose, all of these things. These are the things that we have been looking at over the last, I don't know, three or four weeks. Um, In chapter 2, the Apostle Paul presents two obstacles that basically kept the Ephesians from God and from becoming members of his covenant community. This is kind of something that I've noticed from the text as I've been studying it. Uh, I'm kind of coming at it from a new angle today, but this is really what Paul has been addressing in this chapter is these two obstacles that, uh, that, you know, kept the Ephesians in this sort of mode of obviously not knowing God and in their lostness. So uh, two obstacles, and we're going to be focusing on one of them, but quickly in verses 1 through 10, which we have been studying, um, he dealt with the first obstacle, right? The Apostle Paul dealt with the first obstacle, which was basically sin, right? Yeah, they were dead in the sins and trespasses they walked in. Uh, They were dead in a spiritual sense, we will say, because obviously they walked around in sin, so they were physically alive, but in a spiritual sense, they were dead in the sin and trespasses in which they walked. They could not believe in God. They could not know God. They could not come to God under any circumstances while in this dreadful dead condition, right? But what we've learned is that we we see that wonderful phrase that I keep going back to over and over and over, but God, right? But God who is rich in mercy and who loved them with a great love, he made them alive together with Christ, right? The workmen, as it says in the text, overcame this first obstacle, this sin, this spiritual death. He overcame that for them is what the text says. He breathed new life into them, if you will. He recreated them, it says in the text, in Christ Jesus. He gave them the gift of, or the divine gift of grace through the channel of faith. We've studied all of this stuff. Uh, And back in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul showed us how God did this for them, how he essentially worked this out for them. Do you remember what it says back there in 119, he did it by the working of his great might, by his power. And so God overcame their first obstacle, which was sin and spiritual death, by his power. That's the, really the theme of the first half of chapter 2. It's God's power and what he's done in his power. Very good. Now there is also, or was also, a second obstacle standing in their way, which prevented the Ephesians from becoming members of the covenant community of God. We would call that the church. And that wasn't their sin necessarily. That kept them from God, but it was their status. So it was a sin issue, second obstacle, their status, right? Status, especially in relationship to God's law. God's law was essential to God's covenant community. Keeping the law was required for membership, in a way, if you will. 
Making the necessary sacrifices was required in covenant community. Uh, The sacrificial system was basically part of the law. So those who kept the law, you know, and I'd say by faith and made the sacrifices, they were the ones that remained in covenant community. And those who did not obey God's law, those who did not make the necessary sacrifices in these things were either removed from God's covenant community or they were prevented from joining in the first place. The Ephesians were Gentiles. And Gentiles did not, still do not, and what is a Gentile, a non-Jew? Gentiles did not then, like the Ephesians, did not keep God's law, and they most certainly did not make the required sacrifices. Gentiles had no concept of God's law. They were raised outside of those things. They're not part of the covenant community. They're not part of the nation of Israel. They, They don't know these things. And if they were made aware of these things, they're not things that they would be interested in. Gentiles then, we'll say the Ephesians, they followed cults, and they did definitely make sacrifices to a whole pantheon of Greco-Roman gods. Because of this status, because they weren't obedient to God's law, because they weren't making the sacrifices really a part of that whole situation, they were not covenant members. They were not covenant people. They were, we would say, separated from God's covenant community. So that was their status. That's the second obstacle. First one, sin. God overcame it by its power, by his power. The second one is a status issue. In our text, verses 11 to 13, and that's where we'll be today, we are going to begin to look at how God overcame this obstacle, which changed their status. Okay? Now, as I've said before, these truths that we're about to look at are universal. They apply to unbelievers and believers now. So they are universal in a way. We will also notice a familiar pattern in the text, how Paul used negative phrases to describe who the Ephesians were before Christ like he did in verses 1 through 3, right? They were dead in their trespasses, following the course of this world, following the devil, by nature children of wrath, these sorts of things. Remember these horribly terrible negative phrases he uses to describe them, who they were before Christ? Same thing playing out here. It's like Paul talked about that, then he talked about who they became in Christ, and now he's gone back to talking about, again, who they were before Christ. And I, I noticed four phrases in this, just these couple of verses that he uses to describe them in a very negative way. And then we will get to verse 13, which contains uh, what I consider to be one of the greatest phrases in all of Scripture, by far. Fantastic. So that's where we're headed. That's where we're going. We're going to look at that second obstacle, how God overcame it. And uh, uh, let's pray before we read the text and, and get to work. You guys ready? You're good? All right. Father, thank you for our time together, and thank you for this time of focusing on Scripture. I pray that by the Holy Spirit you would make us not mere hearers, but obedient children. 
Some of us in this room today may have a status that needs to be changed. And maybe a sin issue. Maybe we're still separated from you, Father, by our sin, and our status has not changed. We are separated from the covenant community. These are things that you overcame. I pray that you would make these truths so well known to us, and not just to our ears, to our eyes, to our hearts. May we understand, open open our minds to the truth, Holy Spirit. Sanctify the saints. Save lost sinners. Do whatever it is that you aim to do today. Achieve every purpose that you have for your word right now. And we give you this time, Father. May you be glorified and honored. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's look at the text together, 11 through 13. I'll read it. You can follow along. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Fantastic. We should just end there and, and go get lunch. Let's begin with verse 11, okay? We're going to bite off larger chunks this morning, but, you know, every time I study the Word, I'm trying to figure out how to divide it rightly, you know, and some things need to be handled with small chunks and some in larger fashion, and it just depends on the writing style and obviously the leading of the Spirit. But we're going to pick it up and just go right through 11. He says, therefore, Paul says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by or made in the flesh by hands. And just stop right there. In verses 4 through 10, Paul had declared who the Ephesians were in Christ, right? They were alive, they were raised up and seated with Christ, they were saved by grace through faith, they were recreated in Christ. Why? For what reason and purpose? To obey God's law, right? That's what the good works in the text there means, to obey God's law. When these things were read aloud... And uh, from what I've been gathering, it wasn't just the church at Ephesus that got this letter. It were churches throughout Ephesus and probably in other regions. But when I believe Christians heard this stuff read aloud, they were no doubt filled with a sense of identity, a sense of purpose, and much joy and elation, right? Because when you start a letter and you talk about all the bad, then you end on the good, it's yeah, we like that, right? We're, we're like, up front, we're like, I, I don't, this is, this is tough, I don't lie, I was dead, you know, and all this stuff, now I'm alive, and all, this is what I want to hear. So they were thrilled, they had to be thrilled when they got to that part. One of the great dangers that believers face each day, however, is pride. Knowledge has the potential to puff up, right? It even says it in Scripture, knowledge can puff up. When we learn about who we are in Christ, we can, we can. When we keep hearing these truths about who we are and all this wonderful stuff that God has done for us, we can 
develop a disposition, an attitude of superiority, or an attitude of basically thinking that we are better than others. This can happen. It can happen. It happens with me. This is something that I wrestled with very greatly. I still do to a degree when I first began to look into Reformed theology. Kind of became one of those angry, bitter Calvinists, which makes no sense, and then transitioned into a very soft and pliable... No, I'm kidding. I'm still belligerent and stupid. Uh, But, you know, right? It's knowledge that God was giving me for the intention. He was intending to humble me in these sorts of things. And here I am learning these things, and then I'm discovering everyone around me who doesn't know these things, and so automatically I think I'm better than them. You see how knowledge can create this sort of effect, right? And it did so greatly in me. It still does today, and and I'm battling that. Now, in verse 11, what we see, right? Because Paul has been describing who they are. He's been giving these amazing truths, this amazing knowledge of who they are in Christ, right? And then when we get to verse 11, we see Paul flip the script. He does. And it would appear that basically what he was doing is working to maybe bring the Ephesians kind of back down from the heights a little bit, right? You know, he starts off with this terrible news, and then he, he ends this section with this tremendous news, right? And, and right now, they're flying high. We get to verse 11, and it's like a 50 cal taking a zero out of the sky. Gah, 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 you know? This is what he does. And why does he do this? It's like, he, it's like okay, here's who you are, but, but let's just remember who we were again, Right? So what is he working to do here, I think, in this text? I think he's, he's trying to make sure that they're humble. He's trying to humble them, right? And I believe it was a precautionary measure, right? You know, Paul did not desire in any way to crush. You know, when you talk about who we were or maybe when we address people in, in what they're engaged in now and maybe they're in things that they shouldn't be engaged in that are destructive and all that, you know, our intention should be not to crush the spirit, <laughs> It shouldn't be to decimate, to destroy. And, and Paul has, he might be talking about bad stuff here again, but, th- but that's not his intent at all. I believe he wanted to protect them from pride, which basically in the church, one of the first things that pride leads to is division. It leads to division. You got some people thinking this about themselves. You got others who aren't that way, and you get this weird mix, and then all of a sudden people are warring. You get division. And so what Paul's doing as he's described who they were and now who they are, and he goes back to describing who they were, he begins to do that. I think he's trying to humble them again. He's trying to bring in the sense of who they were. He's he's basically saying, okay, I know we're in the heights right now. We're soaring on eagle's wings, but let's kind of look back again to see who you were before Christ because it's imperative that we look to Christ, look forward to the glory and all that, but it's imperative that we also look back a little bit or look to the now and say, okay, because we need to be humbled. We need to be careful not to get puffed up from this great knowledge that God is giving to us. So he flipped the script, right? Protecting them. Now, he referred to them as Gentiles, right? Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles... He's been referring to them really this whole time in chapter 1 and as being in Christ, which is an amazing thing. I mean, it's like, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a badge of honor, but to be in Christ is an amazing, glorious thing. 
To be called a Gentile at this point here is not the greatest thing in the world. He says, you know, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. Now that's complimentary, right? Gentiles, I said, means non-Jew. In that day, however, it came with a lot more baggage. It wasn't just that, hey, you're, you know, hey, uh, remember that at one time you non-Jews in the flesh. It's basically would be thought of as a derogatory term in a way. And again, he's not cutting them down. He's just reminding them of who they were, right? Gentiles, he says, kind of came with a little baggage, the term. Uh, One thing we know for sure is that the Jews despised Gentiles, hated them, called them dogs. You know, you're subhuman, the way they referred to them. They called them unclean. They called them dogs. Uh, In fact, if a Jew made even accidental physical contact with a Gentile or anything that a Gentile touched or owned, they would be rendered unclean for a period of time and literally have to go through a ceremonial washing. So, you know, Gentile, not the friendliest term here. Any Jewish readers would have been, that's right, that's who you are, you know. Don't forget, you know. Also... Paul told them them that prior to their conversion, right, he said they were in the flesh. This is also another wonderful encouragement. Um, This is actually the second time, I'm kidding, this is the second time he wrote this in Ephesians 2, 2, verse 3. He said, we all lived, once lived in the passions of our flesh. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Here it is, it's in the flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, I like what he says, we all once there, but here he's kind of saying, hey, you Gentiles did this. It's not a good thing, right? This is who we were before Christ, right? We lived according to the flesh. We were fleshy people. Uh, When we notice a brother or sister, however, who is struggling with the flesh, we... uh, tend to say that, we would say, look, they're struggling with the flesh or they're living with the flesh. How many of you have ever had somebody that you knew that's a Christian that kind of went back to the flesh? Or you would say, oh, they, they just kind of departed from Christ and they were, they're living according to the flesh. Yeah, this is a term that we use. But I would say when we notice a brother or sister who is struggling with the flesh, living in the flesh, we should remember that we also do the same thing from time to time and in different ways. We tend to think that the way that, you know, I do this all the time, well, you know, yeah, there's times where I kind of throw the earth suit back on and act like a fool, but I don't do it like that guy over there, let me tell you. There's a big difference between me and him. I got a little flesh. He's full-blown. You know, we make these judgments, right? Um, I tell you, when we notice someone who's in the flesh, brother or sister in Christ, we should hold up a mirror And uh, we should look back, kind of like what Paul is exhorting the Ephesians to do here. You were Gentiles. You lived according to the flesh. Um, We should not do what we do so typically, and that's be overtaken by a critical spirit, a sense of superiority. Well, my sin is not as bad as theirs. All sin kills, Romans 6.23. Uh, What should overtake us when we see someone wrestling in the flesh, struggling in the flesh, a believer? What should overtake us? Compassion. 
Not pride, not judgment. I would think that at this point, as this letter is being read, there are people making in this church or these churches, they are making judgments. They are measuring people, and the worst thing we can do in pride is measure others against ourselves. And that's a mechanism to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. When we look to others who struggle with the flesh or are in the flesh, we should be humbled, remembering who we are and how weak and feeble we are, and then we should exhort and encourage appropriately. We should ultimately point to Jesus, right? He's the only Savior. Paul, what did he do here? He basically reminded them of their former class, if you will. Gentiles were classified as what? The uncircumcision. How wonderful. (laughs) Gentiles, again, did not adhere to the Mosaic Law or to any of the covenant requirements, including circumcision. They did not practice circumcision in this day. They did not circumcise their male babies on the eighth day like the Jews did in accordance with the Scripture. Um, And quite frankly, uncircumcised males had no place in the covenant community of God. This is Judaism or Old Testament 101. It's amazing that, that something like that could prevent you from becoming a part of or a member of God's covenant community. Maybe we would call that the nation of Israel at that time. I know. Circumcision was required for membership in God's covenant community, and it dated back to the time of Abraham. It was the sign that God gave to Abraham about covenant. You shall circumcise your people, if you will, something of that nature. It was a covenant sign, and it it dated way back. Now, the Jews in Paul's day were still very, very much into circumcision. They circumcised their babies, their male babies. On the eighth day, if you will, they, they preached circumcision all the time, wherever they went. What an awkward message. Uh, If a male Gentile desired to convert to Judaism at this point, he would have to undergo physical circumcision. There was like a baptism ritual and some things that they had to go through, and they would have to be circumcised. So, and Gentiles were, by and large, classified as the uncircumcised. They didn't have it done physically. They're not people that adhere to the law. They're not covenant people. It's not their thing, so they're excluded is what he's saying here. Paul mentioned another class, right, in the text, the circumcision. Um, This is a reference to Jews. Jews were the ones, and, and interestingly, it was the Jews that actually classified the Gentiles. It wasn't the Scripture that classified Gentiles as the uncircumcision. It was actually the Jews. He says, referred to as by the circumcision group they're the ones that said we're the circumcision group you're not you're the uncircumcision group so this is something that was playing out at this time in the church they were the ones that came up with the title the uncircumcision which is very obviously derogatory it's a term of derision now unfortunately many jewish christians messianic jews continued at this point to refer to Gentiles as the uncircumcision, 
even after they were converted to Christ. They were still being called this, man. In Acts, we read about how a group of Jewish believers known as the Judaizers, my wife loves that phrase because it sounds silly, the Judaizers, what did these guys do? Paul went around throughout Mesopotamia. He went everywhere, Macedonia. He went throughout all of these regions, and he planted all these gospel-centered churches, right? And then these buffoons come behind him and start preaching another gospel. They're saying it's Jesus plus circumcision. It's the only way that you can become a true Christian, friends, is by being circumcised if you're a male. I guess women got out of it. How wonderful for you ladies. This is what they preached. They went around preaching this toxic poison, right? We read about that in Acts. It's why the church had the first ecumenical council meeting at Jerusalem to deal with that heresy and to send Paul back into all those churches with a letter saying, we don't require you to do that. And what happened with these churches? It threw them, when these guys came around preaching this Jesus plus circumcision, it threw these churches into confusion, especially in Galatia. And this resulted, right, this heresy and people believing it and embracing it, it resulted in discord. It resulted in class warfare between Jewish and Gentile Christians. It basically divided the churches. And that's really what he deals with. That's why your little section title is One in Christ. That's what he's dealing with here is disunity. And what did Paul do when this heresy went around and the churches started to divide over these things? All of a sudden, you had a Jewish camp in the church and a Christian camp. You had the circumcision you had group. You had the uncircumcision group. He, you know, with all this discord and disunity and class warfare, horrible stuff, right? Paul attempted to tear down those classes with statements like Galatians 3.28. John read it. There is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. What's he doing? He's trying to deal with the circumcision group and the uncircumcision group, the first two Christian denominations. That's what he's dealing with. Now, I want you to notice there is also a rebuke in the text. Some of these Jewish believers in this church or churches may have been boasting about their class, about their circumcision. (laughs) Paul declared to them that circumcision, right in our text, was a flesh act, that it was done and performed by human hands. This is how he addresses this group, these people that are exulting in their circumcision, right? He categorized their version of circumcision, right, with the flesh, with flesh acts, really with the flesh acts of the Gentiles, which comes right before his rebuke to them. He talks about how they lived in the flesh. Basically, what he's saying is, you're doing it too by pushing circumcision because it's an act that's performed by human hands. So there's the rebuke. He said, in effect, in Christianity, in effect, right, this is the implication, In Christianity, circumcision amounts to zero. Nada. Zilch. This is what he says. He just tears down this straw straw temple that they've built. Wrecks it. Circumcision did 
nothing for them. It didn't make them Christians. It didn't make them better Christians. It didn't make them higher Christians. It didn't qualify them for membership in the church. Therefore, they had nothing, absolutely nothing to boast about. You can't go around talking about your circumcision, number one, because it doesn't do anything for you. Number two, it's insanely awkward. (laughs) Who goes around boasting about this? Christians. I don't know about you, but I'd be like, "Um, you can keep that aspect of your faith to yourself. Thank you. What an awkward thing to boast about, right? But really, there's so many more implications that come with it. At the end of the day, it doesn't have to do with being snipped or not. It has to do with really being a part of the family of God. And those who are snipped are, and those who aren't, aren't. That's what he's, the argument here. And it's horrible. It's ridiculous. It's spectacular in a bad way. In Christianity, it is literally Jesus plus nothing. It is. When we add something to Jesus, guess what we've done? We've departed from Christianity. We've left it. It's gone. We're now in religion. We're now in false religion. We've joined Islam. We, we have joined a religion when we say these things, when we do these things, when we believe this. We are, in fact, saved by Christ alone, not Christ by some other act or by some ritual. Heaven forbid circumcision. When we add something to grace, we have departed from Christianity. We just signed up for a religion. We are saved by grace Through the channel of faith, not grace, through the exercise, flesh exercise of circumcision. This is what these Jews were preaching. It's horrible. And we laugh, (laughs) because it's an awkward subject, but it's destroying people's lives. Because it's Jesus plus something. You're actually taking people, Ephesians, who were highly religious and, and, and they've been removed from that whole scheme and from that whole ideology and that whole way of thinking, that whole way of life, right? Because they were in false religion trying to earn their way. They've been liberated by the gospel and here we are preaching again, go back to religion. You got to get cut. We are saved by Christ alone, not Christ plus something. We are saved by grace alone through the channel of faith. That's how we receive it, not by some ritual, not by baptism. And for any of you reformers out there, not by sprinkling something on a baby. Your baby isn't saved because they've been sprinkle baptized. Now, we have to guard ourselves against classifying others, don't we? Well, I don't have the circumcision thing to worry about, but I tell you what, we classify people in a lot of other ways, don't we? You know what? There is no black. There is no white. There is no Hispanic. There is no Asian. There is no Indian. There is no Arab in the body of Christ. We are all one in Christ. There is no superior 
or inferior believer in the body of Christ. We are all one. There is no good, better, or best, right? You've ever showed up at a place and they're trying to sell you a product? Well, this is our good one. This is our better one. This is our best. Well, how much is the best? It's a lot. I'll take the better. There is no good, better, or best in the body of Christ. We are all one. Guess what, friends? There is no strong and there is no weak. We are all weak. We are all feeble. We are all weak. You are not a strong believer, and he is not, the microphone, is not a weak believer. And this is what we do. We play this game, right? Well, he's doing this, and and I'm this, and I'm reformed. He's dumb, you know? We spend a lot of time classifying people. And it may not be circumcision, but it's something. And I am guilty. Paul is dealing with this situation in this text. There is a rebuke here. There is a caution You're classifying. Stop. Now let's look at 12. And yeah, he's reminding them of who they were. And he does it here. Look at 12. Remember that you were at that time, talking prior to Christ, separated from Christ, right? At that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Talk about artillery fire. If any Gentile that that heard this read was feeling high and mighty, this was the nuke. This is where Paul described who the Ephesians were before Christ in our section. Now let's begin to look at the four negative phrases he used, okay? Number one, they were what? Separated from Christ. As Gentiles, the Ephesians had no scripture, no prophecy, no promises, no salvation, and no Messiah. They had cults, they had false religion, based primarily, believe it or not, on prostitution, of all things. Their history had no purpose, their history had no plan, no destiny, they had no destiny, except, what was their destiny? The ultimate judgment of God, of which they were completely unaware of. This was their condition prior to Christ. And I'll tell you right now, friends, this should break our hearts, countless People in the world today are in this same boat. They are separated from Christ, the world's one and only Messiah. And you know what? Prior to our conversion, we too were separated from Christ, weren't we? They were separated from Christ. Secondly, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. God had made his chosen people into a theocracy, a nation of whom he himself was king and lord. 
He gave that nation his special blessing, protection, and love. He gave them his covenants, his law, his priesthood, his sacrifices, his promises, and his guidance. The psalmist said that God has not dealt with any other nation in this way. Psalm 147, verse 20. God did nothing like this for any other nation other than Israel. Yet the Ephesians were alienated from the commonwealth, or commonwealth we could say is citizenship. They were separated, they were alienated, separated from Christ, they were alienated from citizenship in Israel. They had no God-blessed community or kingdom, no divine benefactor. They received no special blessing or protection because they were outside of the dominion of God. Now it is obviously the same with unbelievers today. They are also alienated from citizenship, from the citizenship of Israel in a sense, just as we were before Christ. As Christians, however, there is great news. We have been grafted in. We have become citizens. We have been, better yet, made citizens. We are now part of the commonwealth. Abraham has, in a sense, become our spiritual father. He modeled faith. We are in it by faith. Israel's blessings are now our blessings. How wonderful. We are the recipients, right, of the immeasurable riches of God's grace Every spiritual blessing in Christ belongs to us. Unbelievers, however, have none of it. None. No right to anything of God except judgment. Unbelievers, as the Gentiles were prior to Christ, or the Ephesians, they are not God's blessed children, and you might want to take note of that because we go around talking about how all people are God's children all the time, and it's not true. All people are created by God and image bearers, but they're not all His children. Unbelievers are, by nature, what it describes in previous section, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is who The Ephesians were prior to Christ. This is who we were prior to Christ. We were separated from Christ, obviously. We were alienated from citizenship, the citizenship of Israel, the covenant community of God, if you will. Third, Ephesians were also strangers to the covenants of promise. Throughout history, God had made and renewed covenantal promises to individuals, to groups, to a nation, Israel. He promised to bless, prosper, multiply, to save. He promised to give His people a land and a kingdom. He promised to give them a Savior King who would deliver them from all their enemies, especially sin and death, for all eternity. The Ephesians, however, were separated from Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, which made them strangers to the covenants of promise. They had no concept of these things. 
prior to Christ, the only guarantee they had, right, the only guarantee they literally had was that of judgment and hell and destruction. Like the Ephesians, we too were strangers to the covenants of promise. The same rule applies to all unbelievers now, today, forever. Again, the Ephesians were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise and how marvelous are those covenants of promise. And lastly, look at number four with me. And these go very quickly. They don't need much explanation. But look at four. They were without God in the world. You know, Ephesus was home to one of the seven wonders of the world at that time the temple of Artemis, the Greek goddess of hunting, virginity, and childbirth. An interesting combination of things to be in charge of, nonetheless. And you have to understand that uh, people in this day made up their own gods. These gods were designed by their own imaginations, if and these gods literally mirrored human shortcomings. Um, there seems to be something wrong. We can't have children and expand our empire. Let's create a God who will speak to us about that. Oh, solid piece of wood, help us. This is what people do. Well, they don't do that anymore. Sure they do. Um, I have identity issues. I have security issues. Oh, Cadillac Escalade, give me identity. Oh, extremely lifted truck with $10,000 with the chrome. Save me. This is what we do. We, we engage actively in idolatry. It just looks differently than a big temple. Maybe the Ford dealership is the temple that we worship at. Think about it. This was the goddess of hunting, virginity, and childbirth. All righty. The Ephesians had really many gods, right, and goddesses. Uh, Many of the Ephesians were actually pantheists, which means that they believed that God was in everything. Be careful with that rock. He's speaking to you. You know, this is the line of thinking. It's out today. Uh, A lot of the universalists are pantheists. They believe that God is in everything. And so uh, I think that some Hinduism has it, right? Don't kill the cow. Don't eat beef, you just ate God, right? This is the line of thinking. It's out there today. Some of these guys thought along the same way. They were just ridiculously religious, highly religious. And yet, they were what? What does the text say? Prior to Christ, they were without God in the world. The one whom Paul proclaimed to the Areopagus in Athens, right? They were without that God, right? The one that that had the unmarked, uh, what was it? Not the unmarked tomb, but the, you know, there were all these different statues and these memorials in Athens, right? And they had one that was entitled to the unknown God. It's like, well, we've got 140 of them covered. There might be one more. Let's not tick him off. You'll be the unknown God. This is what they had. And Paul told them who this unknown God is. 
The one whom Paul proclaimed to the area Pogus in Athens, right? The God of the unknown altar. The God who what? Made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. He's sovereign. It says, in the world, to be in the world is to follow the course of this world, to follow the prince of the power of the air, the devil, right? Paul's already addressed that. That's what it means to be in the world. It's what it means to be in the flesh. It means to follow the course of this world, the way of thinking. And and what is this way of thinking? It is all things without God. That's how we define the world. It is just remove God completely, and that's the world. It's do all things and act a certain way and live apart from God. It's godlessness is what the world represents. Quite frankly, before Christ, we were without God in the world. But that doesn't mean because we were without Him. That doesn't mean that He didn't exist. And this is a, there's big confusion about this today. Well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't believe in God, so therefore he does not exist. <laughs> because your unbelief doesn't mean that he doesn't exist. You must understand this. We were without God in the world, just like the Ephesians were prior to Christ. And guess what? Unbelievers today are in the same perilous predicament. Being separated from Christ, being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, being strangers to the covenants of promise, and being without God in the world results in what? It it has to have a natural point. It has to come to some kind of head. What did Paul write near the end of verse 12? No, what? Hope. None. No hope. There is no true hope apart from Christ. There is no true hope apart from the commonwealth um, blessings, the commonwealth or commonwealth blessings of God's kingdom, the church. There is no true hope apart from God's covenants of promise. There is no true hope apart from God. That's the progression in the text. Now, here's what's really frightening about this truth and about this reality. It's that the devil has completely blinded people from seeing this. Completely blinded them from understanding this and from recognizing it and from seeing it. And he has created a vast multitude of hope generators and factories things that perpetuate some illusion of hope. He has deceived the world. The world doesn't even know it. I seriously doubt that the Ephesians were aware of their predicament, their hopelessness. I seriously doubt they, they were aware of that prior to Christ. I'm not saying that they didn't experience hopelessness at times. I'm sure they did. But I doubt that they were able to tie 
true hope to God and the things that we've been talking about. They were what? Spiritually dead in sin. Which means that they didn't have any ability to really understand how this true hope is tied to God and God alone. Dead people can't recognize these things. Sin sinful people that haven't been regenerated and they're dead in this, and they can't. And I, I just be honest and transparent with you, I, I didn't get this stuff when I was an unbeliever. If you would have sat me down and said, uh, Phil, uh, it it would do you well to believe in Christ because then you would have true hope. And I would say, I have true hope. This is how I would respond. This is how I responded for 30 years. I have hope. I don't need hope. I have hope. I have hope. My middle name's Hope. And the truth is, is what I was actually doing is I was jumping from one fleshy experiment to another in an attempt to fill the canyon of emptiness in my life. I was trying to generate identity and security and hope and these things, and I went from one thing to the next. And I tell you, what's the opposite of hope? Despair. When I despaired, you know what I turned to? Oh, it feels good. Weed. So when someone said, you can turn to Christ and you can believe in Christ and you can have true hope, and I can say, I have hope. I have an ounce of it. You see, the devil has just created, he's just running factories that are perpetuating false hope. He tells us that, you know, you're single now, and that's lame. But have hope, because someday there's going to be the right woman out there for you. You're not complete until you have a spouse. Are you kidding me? The minute you say, I do, the deconstruction process begins. There is no completeness in marriage. I was completely decimated. You'll have hope when you have the right woman. So what you're saying is I need to put my hope in her. Another sinner. You, you, you know, another one that the devil cranks out of his factory, smokestacks going, right? I'm always reminded when we go to Monterey, I see that atrocious smokestack that's just like, okay, this is ugly, this is beautiful, this is ugly. It's right in the middle of Santa Cruz and Monterey. How, how many of you have seen this? How many of you have wanted to climb up and look down it? I have. And right at the bottom, there's the devil, and he's cranking the stuff out. Oh, great, our pastor's an environmentalist. no. I mean, it, it's like he's got these factories and he's perpetuating this stuff. The woman's going to give you the hope. The, the vehicle's going to give you the hope. The, the bank account, that's, yeah, man, I tell you, that's the best security ever. Do Dave Ramsey times 10. Save a multitude of money. Sit on that gold. There's your hope. Paul's like, don't talk about Dave Ramsey like that. <laughs> Dave's like, don't talk about me like that. He'd probably tell you the same thing. He's just constantly perpetuating more Idols of hope. And we jump from one thing to the next looking for that sense of security, that sense of purpose, that sense of identity, that sense or, you know, hope 
That's what we do, man. You know, but after being put in Christ, you can see things clearly, can't you? To a degree. At first, you don't know much. But I now know the difference between the false hope options of the devil and of this world and the true hope of God. And if you are a Christian, you should be able to recognize the difference as well. It's not like when we first get saved that all this stuff just comes to us and we turn around and we're all like R.C. Sproul. It, it, sanctification is stages. It's stages of learning. It's stages of change. Stages, praise God, of grace, of mercy, of love, mercy, all these wonderful things that he gives us. You know, when I was an unbeliever, I just I thought I had hope. And I didn't. Now I look back and it's like, my hope is, is securely fixed in Christ. And, and I, I don't even believe that's the work that I've done. That's not the fruit of my effort. The fruit of my effort is another baggie of weed. I'm a fool. It's the work of God. We can see things clearly now, right? I don't think the Ephesians could recognize it prior to Christ. Paul is reminding them. Now let's review. What was the first obstacle the Ephesians faced? Sin and spiritual death. How did God overcome it? By the working of His great might and power. He raised us up with Christ. Seated us at His right hand with Christ. Amazing. It's by the power of God. What was the second obstacle they faced? It was their status. They were alienated. They were strangers. They had no concept of the covenant family of God. How did God overcome the second obstacle? Look at verse 13 with me. Ah, it's so good. I got to get a drink first. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, I love that. Here's another but. But now. Before, but God. Now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ah. Oh. It is here, it is there in verse 13 that we see one of the greatest statements in Scripture. Paul told the Ephesians that God overcame their terrible, horrible, godless status, their commonwealthless status, their alienation by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is what God used to bring them near to add them to His covenant community, the church. It is through the blood of Christ that the Ephesians were forgiven and cleansed and reconciled to God. 
Sin had separated them. Sin had alienated them. And the blood of Christ removed their sin and brought them near to God. The blood of Christ here in the text also points to the new covenant, which is what he's going to talk about all the way up into chapter 3. During the Last Supper, Jesus took bread, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and we had given, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus declared a new covenant during that meal. Something new was coming. And what is that covenant? What does it basically boil down to? It is this. It is the permanent forgiveness of sin through His own Blood sacrifice. You see, under the old covenant, the blood of bulls was required, but only temporary. The blood of bulls was a foreshadow of Christ and His everlasting, done, complete, bloody sacrifice. God overcame our status, our, if you're a Christian, our separation by the blood of Christ. And there is a imputation of righteousness that is essential to the combination. If we are forgiven by the blood of Christ, then we are a blank slate. We must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ as well. It's part of it. It's not mentioned here, but it has to be implied because it's, it's the way it works. But make no mistake about it. It's the blood of Christ that brings us near. You just think about it. We cannot know God, draw unto God, beseech God, if we are in our sin, an atonement had to be made. And in the old mode of doing things, it was, it was a temporary substitution of the blood of bulls to, to put it off until the coming of Christ. It was a, like a yearly thing, if you will. It was necessary to the covenant community, but it was temporary. It was a foreshadow. How many countless people believe that they can draw unto God, that they can be in a relationship with God, that they can know God, that they can pursue God while being in their sin? You cannot. God is holy, perfectly righteous. The only way we can know God, the only way that we can know Him is by His power and His might that He changes who we are. The only way that we can be included in the church membership there in the covenant community in Israel, if you want to say that, is by the blood of Christ. It's the only way we can even be presented to Him as spotless and blemishless. We have to take on the blood of Christ who was spotless and blemishless. He was the perfect 
Lamb of God. The final sacrifice. And the Jews are trying to figure out how to build another temple so they can start to make sacrifices again. And these sacrifices will be as valid as circumcision, which means invalid. They mean nothing. The only way to know God, friends, the only way to be restored and reconciled, joined to the family of Christ, is, of God, is through the blood of Christ. That's how we're purified. That's how we're renewed. If anyone should ask you how these things can happen to them, how they can know God, and this is something that we have conversations with people from time to time, right? I, I certainly do. And uh, If someone were to ask, well, what would we say? Well, you know, we can tell them about God first, who is rich in mercy, who loves, who raises people up with Christ by His own great might and power, who uses the blood of Christ to cleanse us of our sins. He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. He brings us to Himself, purified. He adds us to His covenant family, to the church. This is, this is the work of God. We can tell them about the work of God, right? We can tell them about grace through faith. You know, just because salvation is all of God and, and it's, it's, it's by grace and through the channel of faith, we're not fatalists. It's okay to exhort people to repent of their sin and believe. It's all part of God's way of doing it. Well, salvation's all of God and it's through this and that. And, and what's the purpose in evangelism if God is the one who does all of it? This is an argument that people make all the time. But what you are saying at the same time is that you have excluded the means by which he does it. And that's the proclamation of the gospel and that's repentance and believing in Jesus. It's all part of the same deal. It's necessary that we preach these things. So we tell people, you know, God can save you. He's the one. He's the one that's rich in mercy. He's the one that has the power. You can say this. You can glorify God in the way you evangelize. And you're glorifying God still when you say it's by grace only, through faith alone. You can say this, not by your works. You can say, repent and believe the gospel. Look, man, the, the apostles believed in what we've been preaching in Ephesians, and yet they told people to repent and believe. Jesus is the author, and yet he told people to repent and believe. So it's not wrong to do that, even though salvation is entirely of God, it's necessary. And I don't get it. It's a little paradoxical, but it's the truth. So we can exhort them to repent and believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Yes, I believe in divine sovereign election, but I will continue to preach repentance and by grace and through faith and believe in Jesus. I will continue to do that from this very pulpit. Maybe I sound hypocritical. I don't care. Salvation is entirely of God. 
and you must entirely believe it. That's the truth. And so we exhort them, believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then guess what we do? Because here's where we've gone astray. It'd make me feel real good to make them say something out loud in some kind of prayer, walk the aisle, and then sign a card and tell me about their journey. What we're trying to do is we're trying to now measure our success in preaching. You know what we're supposed to do when we preach the gospel? Leave it in the hands of God. I don't have to concoct some kind of a mechanism that's going to make me feel good about my preaching. For crying out loud, I listen to two minutes of my sermons, I'm angry with myself. I hate my mannerisms, I hate my jokes, I hate me. I do, I can't stand me. Mario was like, hey, that was a good sermon. I was like, it was terrible. No, it wasn't, why? Because I preached it, that's why it was terrible. Shut up, it was good. No, it wasn't. I hate me. I don't like the way I sound. If there were video, I would throw up. <laughs> Watching it, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Leave the stage. Spare your people. Leave it in God's hands. What can we take away from this marvelous text? Or better yet, what can we apply? Here's my closing thought for you. I suspect this is what Paul wanted his readers to take away and to apply. And I could be wrong. But I believe this is the point of this particular text. The knowledge of God... The knowledge, actually, of what God has done for us, overcome our obstacles, right? Overcome our sin by His own power, overcome our terrible separated status from the commonwealth, alienation, separated from God, overcome our terrible status through the blood of Christ. It should what? The knowledge of those two things. He overcame my obstacles, praise God, right? Should produce at least two things in our lives. Number one, humility. Because what we're talking about here is the work of God. You didn't do this. You didn't overcome your sin. You didn't overcome your status issue. You didn't say, I think I'm going to make myself part of the covenant family of God today. Hmm. It's the work of God. And it should produce a sobering humility. It should bring us low. This is what Paul has been trying to do, working to do in Ephesians chapter 2 so far. Here's who you were. Here's what you are in Christ. Here's who you were. Here's what you are in Christ. It's like he's working this whole humility angle. And as you notice from the text, there's no mention of our part in any of this stuff. It's been all God doing this stuff. And so we shouldn't walk out of it going, look what I did. We should be humbled. We should be humbled, and we should be humbled for a particular pur uh, purpose, and that is number two, unity in the body. That's what he's after here, friends. You see, when we realize that I was this and helpless and hopeless and separated and alienated and all these things when I was this, and yet God did this for me, and now I'm this, there's no possible way we can walk out of something like this and say, I'm really cool. 
We, we would be humbled, and, and, and there's no possible way that we could even return to classifying people. Believers, like, well, there's this kind of believer, and there's this kind of believer, and there's her, and then there's this guy. and We should have unity because we're all cut from the same cloth. Grace. Nobody in this room is better than the other. Bruce is not better than me. I'm not better than Bruce. Andrew's okay. I'm better than... No, I'm just kidding. Andrew's great. I'm not better than you, Andrew. I'm not better than you, Rhonda. My understanding of something doesn't put me into another class and make me some kind of object of focus and adoration. I am the worst sinner in this place. I have no right to think that I'm better than anyone. None. We walk around. We should crawl. The only way that we're going to have unity in this congregation, in the church as a whole, is if, if we recognize what's been done for us and, and how it's a supernatural miracle and how we didn't play a role in that and we're humbled and we now say, I am dirt and so is everyone else I know in the body and we just all live as dirt. That's the only way. There is not a superior person in this room. We're all inferior. And we have to be really, really careful, my friends, because we can take our little group here and say, well, we got it down, and everyone else out there doesn't. Look at that church. I will admit, there are some issues. There are issues here, too. We are no better than our brothers and sisters in any other place. We've all been saved by the same grace, through the same faith, by the same Messiah. How could we ever spend time classifying one another? I'll add a third thing, gratitude. The opposite of gratitude in this context would be the pridefulness and all that and the stoic sort of attitude of being better and all that. And, and if, if we spend our time being thankful, we just don't have time to think about how great we are. 